Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. We are coming to you from our office and headquarters in Silicon Valley here in the media room. And we have the honor and uh, a great fortune to have Dr. Bruce Friedman, who is in the area visiting. And uh, we decided to get him into the media room just for a little bit. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Bruce Friedman. He's coming all the way from Augusta, Georgia. Uh, he's a physician of critical care medicine and the co-director of the J.M. Still Burn Center over in Georgia, and also a professor in medicine, anesthesiology, and perioptive medicine. And considering that we are in March and it's kidney month, uh, we thought what better way to uh, celebrate it than to talk about uh, acute kidney injury and sort of illuminate some of the problems and also the way uh, technology is being used to solve that. So Dr. Freeman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So before we, you know, as we get into it, just I wanted to sort of rattle off a few statistics that were very alarming to me. Now, um, being a former med student, I, I remember learning about the kidney, and it was a very difficult organ, uh, but I never knew about these statistics. So there's a paper back in 2013 about raising awareness for AKI, and uh, it was written by Dr. Uh, J.P. Lewington. And these are some really alarming statistics. You know, 300,000 people die every year alone in the U.S. from AKI. There's a chart that shows prostate cancer, breast cancer, heart failure, diabetes, and then AKI is just skyrocketed in terms of the number of deaths it contributes to. Um, on average, it costs a hospital anywhere from three to 14,000 to treat, uh, $9 billion a year, so it's a huge, huge problem. And the length of stay, uh, for, for, for a person is about 3.5 days after they get AKI, and 3.5% of the admissions to hospitals get that. Now, one last thing I wanted to show was I, I decided, well, that was back in 2013. What about now? And I found a paper in 2017, and this is uh, written by Dr. Uh, G.M. Shurtau, and they found that um, 8 to 16% of hospital admissions actually get AKI. So the problem's not only doubled, but tripled in some cases. Why, why is that? Well, it's, it's a very good point. The, uh, one of the things is, and this goes to where hospitals are today, hospitals today are really acute care centers. You know, years ago when I first started practicing medicine, we'd admit people that were not very sick, and they'd stay in the hospital, and they, we'd get them better, and you can't do that anymore. The people who come to the hospital now have multiple comorbidities, they have a, a very, very acute injury, so you're getting a higher acuity uh, of patients admitted to the hospital. What you, what you didn't mention with the AKI is once they get AKI, their mortality goes up 40%. So in other words, say you've got somebody already in the hospital on a mechanical ventilator, dependent on that ventilator, then they go into AKI. Their mortality rate, instead of being about 20, 30% just being on the ventilator, goes up to 70 to 80% during that period that they're still in AKI. So it has a devastating uh, effect. And the reason why is because there are two brains the right kidney and the left kidney. 
They're powerful machines. And when that machinery goes bad, lots of things go bad. Toxins appear, you can't control your electrolytes, your fluids, your acid-base status. All of that changes radically. Uh, so the only thing you're left at that point is to putting in them some form of artificial means of support. And by that you mean something like dialysis? Dialysis, what most of us use are, is the continuous form, uh, what we call continuous renal replacement therapy. Uh, and that controls it, but it's a device. It requires a, a, a very large central line, which then carries with it the risk of infection. Uh, it doesn't control everything. Uh, lots of fluid shifting, blood losses. Be the machine doesn't work perfectly all the time. So there are lots of complications associated with just being on the machine itself. Interesting. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the admissions. And so you know, eight to sixteen percent is quite high. So you go into the hospital. How do you get acute kidney injury? Well, most patients that I see uh, in my population is because somewhere along the line there is loss of perfusion to the kidneys. In other words, blood flow. Blood pressure gets low. And it doesn't have to be for a long period of time. It can be for 20 minutes, a few hours, four or five hours. It depends on the person. Depends on how hardy they are. But once they get exposure to that hyperperfusion, for whatever reason, they're in shock, they have severe congestive heart failure, uh, they have septic shock, burn shock, trauma shock, uh, post-operative shock, whatever the time period they're exposed to that low blood flow is when they become at risk for acute kidney injury. And so the, you know, as, as you know, as it says within the, within the term acute, so it's ab abrupt and rather quick, how many of these patients actually know, or not just the patients, but even the physicians and nurses, how many of them actually know that they were uh, a victim of an AKI event? Well, you can see it. I mean, it, it, you begin to start to see a slowdown in the urine output. Uh, you begin to see changes in their chemistries. We rely heavily on the simple chemistry such as the BUN and creatinine. Uh, they will go up. Uh, they may jump in 24 hours, say from a normal range to uh, maybe one point higher than they were. Those are your early clues. Uh, and uh, th those are pretty straightforward clues. Uh, that you look for then that steers you towards let's well okay why is this happening okay was there a period of time that their blood pressure was low uh, and if there was there could have been damage to the kidneys can we do something to get them better are we giving them um, a medicine that could be affecting their kidneys mm -hmm. uh, uh, can we improve the forward flow in other words from the heart is the heart not pumping enough? Can we do something about that? Uh, can we do something about the blood pressure? So we start looking for things that we can fix in order to modify the effect on the kidneys. But unfortunately, if that exposure to the low flow was long enough, the kidneys will progressively get worse, no matter what you do. Hmm. 
And so you mentioned, you know, and I guess that's that's the uh, key biomarker is checking creatinine levels. But um, you need, I believe, you need a to have a blood draw to check the creatinine levels. That's so let's just imagine like a patient who comes out of a surgery and let's say they had some a little more blood loss than usual in the surgery so they're hypovolemic so maybe there's damage to the kidney how is it how common is it that the patient's actually checked and, and they do a blood draw later on and and is it possible that when those creatinine levels are low or high that they miss it within the window that they are well, they may not. You're, you're absolutely right. They'll definitely get a, a, a if they've lost blood. They'll definitely get checked to see if the blood, you know, if their blood uh, hemoglobin count is low. Uh, they may not get a BUN and creatinine check until say the next morning, mm -hmm. but their urinary output will be monitored very closely. That's uh, that's always the key. Uh, so you you will watch that urinary dynamic, uh, and that will give you. Should give you some idea, although the standard of care, the current standard of care, is not the best for that. And when you say for, it's not the best for that for for urine output measurement. For or? urine output measurement, because it's what's it's, that look like these days in your average hospital? Well, most hospitals are still using a standard Foley catheter with a gravity drainage bag, and uh, you know that can give you uh, a false sense uh, of. Uh, of urine function, uh, especially when you're you know trying to drain the Foley catheter to get every little bit out of it, uh, you're going to get wide swings and variability uh, in the urine flow, uh, which may you may think that the kidneys are functioning okay, in reality they aren't. And when you say a, a gravity bag, so this is just. For, for those uh, listeners who are not familiar, it's this basic catheter. You walk in and, and there's a bag that just drains urine in and sometimes there's a little bit of urine that's hanging in the catheter. And I believe the nurse or a tech tech comes in and, and milks that catheter to pull the urine into Correct. there. So when that, how often is that done usually and, and how accurate is and reliable is that? I mean, they're, they're measuring, we're, we're, our nurses in the ICU setting with the critically ill patients are measuring urine flow every hour. Mm -hmm. So they're, 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 they're jotting that down and, uh, and, and looking at the collection of the urine uh, every hour. Got it. Got it. And if they, if let's say whether it's an ICU or another department, if it's, if it's very busy and the nurse has different things to do, do we end up seeing variability in that? Because it sounds like a lot of manual work is being done. Oh, yes. Done. Yes. They will, uh, yeah, and sometimes it'll be three or four hours, uh, you know, before they look at the total flow. Uh, so they may miss a period of, so you may miss a period of time where there was a low flow state uh, and, and then it maybe picked up and then it dropped back down. So you're going to miss some of that. So you're going to miss that variability, and that early variability actually could give you a clue that maybe we're getting into trouble. Oh, yes. Yes. They will, uh, yeah, and sometimes it'll be three or four hours, uh, you know, before they look at the total flow. Uh, so they may miss a period of, so you may miss a period of time where there was a low flow state, uh, and, and then it maybe picked up and then it dropped back down. So you're going to miss some of that. So you're going to miss that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, if that happens. I don't see that in my practice because I do, I'm, I'm totally inpatient. Mm -hmm. 
but I know that it happens because people will go home, for example, from our you know our wound floor uh, population, uh, and then they'll be readmitted for something else having to do with the wound care, and all of a sudden, well, gee, their uh, their renal indices, their BUN and creatinines are up up now mm-hmm. uh, from the last admission. So they probably did leave with some. Uh, acute kidney injury uh, that just got progressively worse when they got home. Yeah. In your opinion right now, um, you know, as I mentioned before, the kidney, it's a very, very complicated organ. It doesn't seem like it has as much um, uh, technological support, we can say, as, as other as other organs. So when you have, like, an, uh, say, an acute myocardial infarction, there's, you can, there's stents, there's a variety of ways to treat that, correct? It doesn't seem like that with a kidney. Why? Why is that? Well, uh, there, there really. I mean, unless you, there are some things you can do if it's post bladder. In other words, if it's obstructed, there are the, the urologists can come in there and stent them and things like that. But if it's, those are really not. That causes kidney injury when you block below the bladder. But that's not really AKI. Uh, so there are things you can do, but uh, for the kidney itself, there's, there really is very little that we can do other than fix the things that affect the kidney. Uh, in other words, like I said before, is, is there, can we improve the flow to the kidney by improving the cardiac performance? So if the cardiac performance is down, uh, can we can we get that working again by getting better cardiac uh, indices, uh, or uh, does the kidney just need a little jump start? In other words, uh, has it slowed down because there was a period of hypotension, but maybe the tubules all they need is a little bit of diuretic that will kind of get them back, you know, get them jump started. So we add a diuretic, or is the patient actually still hypovolemic? Uh, in other words, say they've gone to surgery, uh, they said they had this much blood loss, but in reality there was a lot more blood loss. So they need more volume, they need more blood, and that may bring the kidneys back to, to working. You know, But having an accurate, continuous monitoring of that urinary output then becomes critical to be able to do those interventions to potentially down the line reduce the incidence of acute acute renal failure. And do you feel, you know, because of, let's say, a lack of, of, of hospitals and technology, at least in the last 10 or 20 years, that haven't been able to provide that, that constant monitoring, um, do you feel that the instance of AKI has, that's one of the reasons why it's jumped up so much? I think that has definitely contributed to it, yes. Along with, as I said earlier, the I think the uh, uh, the acuity of the patients coming into the hospital is also higher. Mm. So after a patient, you know, gets AKI, are they are they ever really the same? What what does that cascade look like? Let's say a patient gets a classic AKI uh, uh, event. What what happens and what does it look like for the next ten or twenty years for them? Well. Many of the patients, uh, after their inciting event, whether it's trauma, burn, uh, major medical complication of some sort or surgical complication, they get better. They can. Um, Probably 
60% maybe get better, uh, and their kidney function returns to normal. But when you have high acuity patients that already have comorbidities, diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, who have an element of underlying kidney disease already, then they go into AKI, those patients are less likely to return to normal. And do they get progressively worse over time? They end up on long-term dialysis. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. And in fact, older patients uh, with comorbidities who go into an ICU and get AKI, most of them stay in renal failure, uh, up to 50 to 60% of those. And what are some of those comorbidities? Again, diabetes, hypertension, uh, peripheral artery disease, um, uh, and all, those are the most common. And just for our listeners, what, what's a, what, one of the more common peripheral artery, artery diseases that uh, patients have? Any kind of uh, uh, vascular, you know, the, uh, anything that affects the large, or larger medium-sized arteries, whether it be smoking, ah, okay. um, whether it be diabetes, okay. uh, long-standing hypertension. All, or what we call just bad arterial sclerosis. Some people just have a propensity to develop plaque. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. You know, and that makes sense. You know, the one of the studies that, that was discussed, um, I believe at ASN last year, was that a lot of these patients who were, who were post-AKI or had an AKI event, uh, 10 years down the line, they were four to six times more likely to have uh, a cardiovascular event, and then uh, some t- something like four or five times higher to have another, you know, more severe uh, renal uh, renal issue. Um, why why do you feel that that might be the case? Well, I think uh, again, the kidney has suffered an injury, uh, so if they have any other insult along the way, uh, the kidney then will have less reserve to respond to that. So that makes a whole lot of sense that they would have problems down the line. And we find that the sick ICU patients uh, that go through a devastating illness often have multiple problems after that initial ICU stay in the hospital. Interesting. And I guess, you know, unlike, let's say, the heart with the kidney, we, we don't have uh, stents or, or things like that thing going because the, the nephron's pretty small, right? Right. So we have to just rely on using physiology you know to its best advantages which in itself is kind of like a black box right again there are there are some things you can do if they have a particular problem uh, in the renal artery you know that in terms of arteriosclerosis or certain autoimmune diseases but those are very rare for the most part trying to recover somebody at AKI is very very difficult now something that was really interesting and I, I was uh, very interested to ask you about when I spoke with different nephrologists they all said a version of what I'm about to share mm-hmm. which is that AKI it's, it's a syndrome but the cause of it as, as you've just illuminated there's multiple causes of it whether it's uh, drug-induced um, cardiac surgery all, all kinds of things but it seems that they use AKI as this umbrella term and there isn't really a, a delineation of how you treat each of these patients, and it's kind of it's kind of a catch-all. Mm-hmm. Is that because it's such a 
you know, uh, well, I, I don't, I won't say. But what, why do why do you think that is? Why is it, it's, it that it's uh, treated as this umbrella term? Um, I think that that's really the only terminology we have for these. Um, there really isn't anything else that defines this disease process. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's where it stands, stands alone, really. Do you feel that maybe um, with better technology, better biomarkers and understanding of the disease, that say diabetic-induced AKI versus say surgical-induced AKI, that they start being treated differently and approached differently? Well, I think there's a there has to be a difference. Distinct, you got to distinguish between CKD, which is chronic kidney disease, and acute kidney injury. What we see with the diabetic and the hypertensive and the arterial sclerotic patients, that's CKD. It's a progressive. Uh, uh, worsening renal function over time. Mm -hmm. The AKI patient may have these disease states uh, uh, but may have not manifested CKD yet but they're more likely to get into trouble in a serious situation because of their underlying disease states. And, and in your practice you deal with a lot of burn patients, correct? Oh, yes. So what's, what's that like with, with the burn patients? What are some of the uh, obstacles that you've faced as a physician with your team in dealing with burn patients and, and trying to protect them from AKI? Yes, I mean, the, the large burns are the most difficult uh, because we have to give them a lot of fluid uh, in the early phases of their burn injury because they lose a tremendous amount of fluid uh, uh, because of the loss directly from the, the skin. When you lose the tissue, your the, the skin exudes out fluids, volumes of fluid, uh, and those patients uh, are in shock. Uh, so they require fluids, but at the same time, while you're trying to give them fluids, uh, you have to maintain perfusion as well because they go into shock. It's a, a shock response to the injury. Uh, so their vessels dilate down uh, and uh, and they begin to get less blood flow to their organs and one of those organs are the, is the kidneys. How sensitive are the kidneys uh, with, with patients who are suffering from burns? Oh, very sensitive. And it's mainly because of the, 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 low, the low amount of volumes? That's right. They're exposed to low volumes, they're exposed to low blood pressure for periods of time. Uh, they're also exposed to some toxins. Mm. Uh, you know, people who, for example, have gasoline or any hydrocarbon burns, that hydrocarbon can have a direct effect on the kidney, so the toxins, oh yeah. Uh, people who uh, have deep burns that involve the muscle or have muscle damage from the burn injury, that muscle breakdown actually causes kidney damage. Oh, and too. the release, I guess, of the, of the of protein the, and everything. It, right. It puts a lot of strain on the kidney. Exactly. Interesting. Yes. So you have two problems, a hypovolemic yes. one and then a... Um, and a toxins or muscle or muscle breakdown damage, yeah. what we call rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdo, there we go. And for, for our listeners, rhabdomyolysis is, is a, it's common. Like you can get that just from working out really hard, but in these cases, it's a lot of... Yeah, it, it has to do with the depth of the injury. These bigger burns actually get down to muscle. Uh, and the muscle is damaged. Anytime muscle is damaged, uh, that causes a release of the, these uh, uh, significant toxins from the muscle tissue. Interesting. That the kidney has to clear and it can't. 
so it, it, it's difficult. So you have to do things to kind of help the kidney clear that. What, like, I guess in, in the past and, and from, from your training, what was done, let's say, 10, 20 years ago to do this, and, and what's, what's being done now, if anything's changed? Well, I mean, the, the best thing to do in these situations uh, to help the kidney is to provide the, a, a proper amount of volume to continue uh, the best flow uh, towards the kidney. Uh, at the same time, monitor the cardiac function to make sure that uh, you're getting enough uh, forward flow and perfusion. Uh, so it, it's really perfusional indices uh, and uh, keeping up with volume losses. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the critical pieces. There's no magic uh, bullet here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and of course, monitoring that urine output very closely uh, in order to decide what kind of changes you might need to make, whether you need to give more volume, uh, or whether you need to give volume and maybe something to help the heart pump better, those kinds of things. But there's no no magic drug you can pull off the shelf and, right. and reverse the acute kidney injury. So it sounds, you know, it sounds like since we don't have any any at the moment great drugs or, or technologies after the event happens, it seems like it's even more important to be able to monitor and catch these things before they happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I know that, um, you know, with Apple, there's that girl, I think, down in Florida who uh, the Apple Watch picked up that she had, she might be having a cardiovascular event and she went to a hospital. So that was kind of predictive. Mm -hmm. um, is that what we need to, how we should start looking at the kidney? Because, because of the fact we don't have anything that will help a post-event, that we need to be better about catching it beforehand. Yeah, I think, again, the earlier we can capture changes in urine output, uh, the more likely we can uh, adjust fluids properly, uh, adjust inotropic therapy properly, but we really have to stay on top of it and watch those uh, numbers very, very carefully. And I think the earlier we see the changes, uh, the more likely we have for the potential to reverse the acute kidney injury, how you know? Do you think that this by just doing that alone will be you know, hospitals, physicians, nurses—they'll be able to save you know a lot of those lives, those hundreds of thousands of lives I mentioned earlier per year. There. Well, again, you have to recognize that we're dealing with a complex group of patients, so. Uh, but the idea here is that if you can take that 40% mortality off the table by stopping the AKI or preventing the AKI, that's a big deal. Mm. That doesn't mean the patient may not die uh, from other reasons because they're critically ill, mm -hmm. but that at least eliminates that fact. One big one, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, you know, that you really uh, kind of opened my eyes to something because I, I used to always think that, you mentioned uh, patients being on ventilators earlier, and at least in my knowledge, the only thing I can think of where a patient could go from acute to chronic and still be discharged is with kidney failure, and then of course they're on dialysis. And I guess the main thing was that in the past, you know, f being able to predict and catch those things was very difficult. And all you could really do is that if it happened, you you help provide uh, renal support to the best of your ability. That's correct? right. But it, you know, it, it looks like 
with better techniques, better technologies, better understanding, we can catch these things way earlier on and then start segmenting these patients, say like a diabetic patient versus, for me, believe, so believe it or not, I'm a, young, I'm a young, healthy guy, but I actually only have one functional kidney, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it sounds like that's, that's really the key. So right now as a physician, when it comes to management of the kidney, especially in your burn patients, what techniques, technologies, what, what things do you see coming down the horizon that's going to help uh, the medical community better address this and, and move towards what sort of the vision that you're discussing? Well, I think that, uh, again, uh, the device that we've, we've worked with, uh, we did, our, did some of the original work with the uh, initial Acuron device, uh, that has now gone through several uh, changes and has become even more uh, potentially useful in terms of uh, uh, the acute, critically ill, complicated patient. Having a device like that that gives you continuous monitoring without damaging the uh, bladder mucosa uh, and can give you urinary output, closely uh, seeing those numbers that's something that can be very useful in this patient population. Uh, and there's other artificial intelligence that can definitely be uh, uh, commingled with this device uh, that I think is fantastic. So again, this kind, kind of intervention uh, early on, uh, put in the proper patient population, trauma shock, burn shock, septic shock, uh, surgical, post-op surgical shock, these patients would definitely benefit and it could stop them uh, early on from going into AKI. Interesting. Uh, as we get better with our biomarkers for renal failure, uh, which you know I think that we will, uh, we may be able to pick that up earlier again looking for an intervention. The one thing that we don't have though are interventions. Hmm. In other words, we, we don't have that magic bullet. So I think that begs the question that we need something to monitor very, very closely the urinary output hmm. uh, so that we have accurate record of that so that we can do what little we have to do clinically uh, in order to protect the kidney uh, before they do go into full-blown AKI. Interesting, and that you know that really does make sense, and it's it kind of it really illuminates why it's looked at as an umbrella term because there hasn't been a way to really you just you just I guess in the past as a as a medical team you just want to be lucky enough to stay on top of let's say the urine output and and some of these uh, biomarkers just to make sure that you're maintaining them. There's not enough time to capture all that data and then start segmenting, say like what urine output and some of these other biomarkers look like for, let's say, a diabetic patient versus, let's say, one that's post-op and, and you know. No, not really, because you really have to, you're jumping on this is to try to prevent uh, this very acute uh, renal failure issue. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it would be really exciting, not just for the medical community, but also the, uh, the you know, the technology community that's involved that once we start tapping into this kind of data and understanding it, then the right therapies and treatments can start coming along to treat each patient differently versus sort of a, a catch-all. Because right now there's, there's no data, there's not enough uh, deep understanding to be able to segment those things, and it's just about keeping them at baseline. Correct. Interesting. Yes. 
you know, on the topic of uh, of biomarkers, I know the the key biomarkers marker uh, for for uh, the kidney is creatinine, but it's that and GFR or glomerular filtration rate. It's not always as as reliable, correct? That's right. So what what's the next? Uh, I guess we always see a lot of biomarkers discussed when it, when it comes to the kidney at these conferences, but what would you say would be sort of the next thing? Is it limited only to biomarkers, or? Well, I think that again, there there are these there are there are some specific enzymes that have been looked at uh, that are pretty accurate, uh, but not yet you know totally sensitive and specific, uh, but have been shown to be helpful in in making the diagnosis of early AKI. But I think. Even, even if we get really, really good at it, say you can predict it, maybe predict it before it happens, you know, uh, to the point where it's like, you know, you'd get it as soon as they arrive and, oh, wow, that's going to tell me this patient. What do we do? That's the question, you know. And right now we don't have a whole lot we can do. Um, uh, you know, one theory is to institute renal replacement therapy early without necessarily doing dialysis, but to just to control the volume. So you won't necessarily lose the urine flow that you have, but uh, you can control some of the toxins that are floating around in the blood mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. But like I said, there's no true intervention that you can say is going to go directly to the kidney and stop the tubules from getting damaged. Mm -hmm. There's nothing we know of that does that. Uh, and that's what we need. If somebody come up with that, then we'd be in good shape. Got it. So. It sounds like before we, you know, any of that's done, there has to be an understanding of when and how this happens. That's and right. Then, and then physicians can do what they've done throughout history, which is, okay, now we know when and how this happens, we can start to decide what we do to to and do it as, and do it earlier and earlier. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, fantastical, doctor. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. It was very educational. It definitely opened my eyes a lot about why um, why AKI is the way it is. So, and before we sign off, I mean, any any last thoughts or words of wisdom for us? No, I th I think that uh, you like I told uh, your folks earlier. I I think that. You are on the cutting edge here, and you are going to save lives. Uh, so keep on doing it. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, again, thank you again for, for joining us. And one last thing is that uh, for, for those listeners of ours, a lot of them are online and, and really love to keep up with the guests that we have. Are you, are you do you have a blog or Twitter or any, anything online? or <laughs> Other than email, no, I don't have I'm not a Twitter or a blogger. <laughs> well, so that's just one other good excuse for us to make sure that we have you back here soon again, because I'm sure a lot of people are going to have questions after this. You know, oh, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you again. My pleasure. <laughs>